Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Welcome to It Never Gets Old, a firsthand account of all things secondhand, consignment, resale, vintage, and sustainable because the future of fashion is nothing new. I am your host, Meredith Feynman, and the bestie in the Westie, Sarah Lane, will be editing this, but I am joined by Jane Mossbacker Morris, who is the founder and CEO of apparel brand To The Market, who has been doing a lot in Corona, but is also a friend and has lots to say about sustainability and pipelines and all that her tell you thanks for joining jane thanks for having me merida tell it never gets old listeners i haven't come up with like a good name like ingos we need like a group name guys get on it but tell everyone who you are and what your company's about and and all that so hi everybody i am the founder and ceo of a company called to the market and our vision is changing the way that retail manufacturing is done to empower people and protect the planet. And what that means in practice is that we are a network of ethical suppliers around the world who produce apparel, accessories, and home goods. And to the market works alongside other brands, retailers, and corporations to access these ethical suppliers. So you might find product that we have helped make that's organic or fair trade or upcycled in places like Target or Dillard's or even Bloomingdale's. I will say we are recording this in quarantine. Jane sounds so good because she's sitting in a closet. So I will live think. in this closet. <laughs> <laughs> Closets are really great for audio. Yeah. Um, I, I don't know what to tell you. Um, so where did the idea from to the market come from? And to be clear, by the way, this is not sponsored. Jane is a friend and she is someone who has made a lot of really, really wonderful headlines during COVID um, for what her business has done. And I want her to talk about what we can all be doing, but I, I want to hear what it's like to really be in the trenches right now. So tell me where To The Market came from. So the idea for To The Market came from my background. So I started my career working a lot overseas. I was working in the U.S. Department of State and um, then worked for uh, Mrs. Cindy McCain. And while I was traveling and working overseas, it became incredibly clear that the largest industry in the developing world, which is agriculture, 
had a lot of outside investment to make the supply chain more transparent, more sustainable, and more ethical. But the second, second largest industry in the developing world, which is retail, did not enjoy the same level of investment and attention on making it, again, more sustainable, more transparent, and more ethical from a labor standpoint. And so I realized that there was a huge opportunity for me to focus on creating a supply chain that was ethical and making it easily accessible to brands, retailers, and corporations who I think want to do the right thing, but oftentimes don't know how. Mm-hmm. It's interesting because on It Never Gets Old, my foray into sustainability and sustainability in fashion was through my love of secondhand. And I want to get into sort of your love of vintage. So when was that that you started to the market? And what was it like starting a business rooted in not only sustainable like manufacturing and practices, but also labor. Um, I think we talk a lot about waste and we talk a lot about water, but we don't talk enough about people. So tell me where and how, you know, you had this idea. How did it start? So people was really the primary driver for me. And um, it was the primary driver because when I was at the State Department and then when I was uh, working for Mrs. McCain, I was focused on women. Um, and women in the developing world in particular. And the, the, the feedback that I got across whatever job I was doing was that, you know, I appreciate your leadership training or I appreciate, you know, X or Y opportunity. But at the end of the day, if we as women don't have access to finances, whether we earn them, we inherit them or we share them, our power is limited. And so it mm-hmm. planted the seed for me of, okay, how would I then create and sustain jobs in the developing world in particular um, that is uh, in an industry that is dominated by women. And as I'm sure you've talked about many times, the retail industry is dominated by women across the value chain. So the majority of garment workers are women. The majority of buyers at retail organizations are women. The majority of consumers are women. And yet when you look at who owns the factories, who runs even the female brands and who the investors Mm -hmm. are, it tends to be men. And so I thought, okay, here is an opportunity to create more balance and to help to transform an industry. So how did you, when did you start the company and what was it like really having this commitment to things that might not be that popular. Like, yeah, we might call them a trend now. Like I never want to say women are trendy or any, you know, bullshit like that. But like what barriers to entry did you find also as sort of a female founder wanting to serve other women um, in a more sustainable way? So we became a corporation in 2016. And I think, you know, at the time there were, were definitely biases around the idea that you can't do well financially and do good at the same time. So I remember when I went out to raise my first round of financing, I think there were definitely perceptions around, should you be a not-for-profit? And it's sort of Mm -hmm. like, no, there's nothing about the business that is not scalable, that isn't like strong unit economics, just because we happen to have a social good baked Mm -hmm. into our core value proposition does not mean, you know, it can't be hugely economically viable. So that was definitely a point of frustration. And I think you also have the challenge of, I think people feeling like, okay, retail is a fluffy place. Mm -hmm. Um, It's not, you know, hard tech, 
even if you have tech, which we do associated with our vetting and our uh, sourcing and shipping, et cetera, et cetera, it's still, I think, is perceived as a bit of a, I've heard the word pink ghetto, yeah. which um, yep. is a shame because there is so much money to be made in the retail industry. And, you know, we're excited to try to create positive financial outcomes for people in our uh, business, whether they're again on the, in the supply chain or they're the investors in our cap table. But I mean, I would say early biases were definitely challenging to overcome. And they were probably like, oh, this is like such a nice thing you want to do for like people. And you're like, yes, but I also want to make a lot of money doing yeah, it. Yeah. Know that I, I can. I think, I think that there was the also bias that if you are using non-traditional suppliers, which we focus on, so mm -hmm. we focus on, okay, who are the makers that haven't been, haven't partnered uh, or been potentially exploited by these massive brokerage companies who have dominated mm -hmm. the way that uh, American companies in particular source and manufacture their goods. So if we're focusing on these non-traditional suppliers, so the fair trade certified factories, the women owned and operated factories, the Gotts Organic certified factories, or even the artisan groups, I think there was this bias that surely you can't have, you know, a great product and produce at scale if you're using these non-traditional suppliers. And mm -hmm. I really had to prove that you can absolutely produce at scale. You can you can produce tens of millions of units using these non-traditional suppliers. Um, you can produce beautiful product that's of incredibly high quality, probably better quality than these questionable, these factories right. with questionable environmental and social footprints. Um, but but people had to sort of get their head around the idea that this was possible. And the parallel that I often draw is, you know, our, our, the industry that I look to as the sort of where I think the fashion industry will be in five to 10 years is agriculture, mm -hmm. and particularly coffee. And it's sort of like the idea of someone saying, today, now knowing what we, we know about, you know, how big gourmet coffee is, the extent to which people mm -hmm. have preferences around, oh, well, I like, you know, uh, Jamaican coffee or Guatemalan coffee or a Hawaiian coffee, yeah. whatever that looks like. Someone saying, oh, well, I just assume that the best coffee would come from fincas, which are like these industrial farms. And in your head, you're like, no, like, of course, we now know that like small batch coffee or like mm. fair trade, direct trade, whatever, like is delicious. It's gourmet. It's, you know, it's, it's just better taste, ethics, sustainability, et cetera. And, and that's sort of the bias that we fight against in the way that we operate, where again, we're saying, look, this product can be even better like even better operationally from a price point standpoint, from a sustainability standpoint, from an ethics standpoint, we don't have to rely on these massive factories to produce the products that Americans enjoy. Yeah. And I, so we've talked like about different kinds of waste, but like, talk to me about what goes into like the labor portion and the giving back to women. Like, how does that work? How do you pick these, you know, manufacturers? What are your, requirements and like also what do you think it's going to take for the rest of the industry to really really pay attention to labor practices well as, as far as how we we identify and then our partners um, we look for organizations whether again it's a large factory or it's a small artisan group that are a employing vulnerable persons b they have uh, third-party certifications that are showcasing 
their usually their labor or sustainability credentials. So that could be again a GOTS organic certification, a fair trade certification, a NEST certification, which is a certification in the artisan space. Yeah, if you could um, explain some of those, like yeah, totally. what 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 goes into what goes into an artisan one? I mean, I know we we all we we sort of know what fair trade. Like, let's break it down for a second. Talk if you could just sort of do like a one hundred and one to some of these certifications. Like, what does that actually mean? So certifications are really very imperfect in the retail industry. And actually, I did an entire chapter. So I wrote this book by the change you want to see that came out in January of twenty nineteen, um, all about conscious consumerism and. There's a, a chapter on coffee, there's a chapter on chocolate, and then there's a chapter on apparel. And I talk about, in each of those chapters, certifications. And the point around the chocolate and coffee discussion as it relates to certifications is there's almost like an abundance, like maybe too many certifications for coffee and chocolate. So you can literally turn over a bag of coffee in the grocery store and see like five or six certifications that could be Fair trade certified, which means that the farmers were paid, you know, sort of very much so above market wages. It can mm-hmm. be bird friendly, which means that like the way that the actual beans were harvested were friendly to birds. It could be rainforest friendly. Like there's just so many like super esoteric certifications that as a consumer, it can be really overwhelming. On the flip side, in the retail industry, you have so few certifications that people are familiar with that it's actually really tough. And even when brands are producing in a certified factory, they often are not doing, I think, a particularly good job of explaining that to the consumer. So something like fair trade is, again, similar to the ag space, is really about the wages and the work environment that the operators, which is the term for people who work on a production line, that the operators are paid and how they're paid and you know what essentially their work environment is like. Something like a GOTS organic certification is a factory certification, which not only looks at labor, but also looks at environmental sustainability. So how is the factory using chemicals? What is the water waste procedure within the factory? It's a very common one in the organic space. And then in the artisan space, this is like very, very new because one of the biggest challenges that artisans have had is that they do something called homework meaning they literally work from home instead mm-hmm. of working in a shared space. And because they don't look work in a shared space, it's really hard for, for artisan groups to be qualified as, quote, fair trade because you don't have that facility to assess. Right. Mm-hmm. And so Nest, which is a nonprofit based in New York that focuses on developing the artisan industry, created a certification that takes into account the fact that most artisan groups actually operate from home and looks much more at um, the circumstances in which they work, the materials that they use, the way that they're paid, et cetera, but in the context of the fact that they're working from home. We'll get into sort of like your secondhand habits, but for firsthand things, which we don't talk a lot about on the podcast, like it's hard because a lot of big brands or big companies don't make this easy for you and how much of the onus is on the consumer and how much of the onus really is on these companies. And I think a lot of it is the latter, but, you know, we're always trying to be more conscious consumers. How do we like what are your tips for, I guess, more conscious shopping if you are doing non secondhand? Like what what does that look like? in your ideal world? My recommendation is to 
start small. And I say that because it's almost like becoming a healthier eater. If you try to make really grandiose commitments that are unrealistic for you to maintain, then you might end up throwing the baby out with bathwater, right? Mm -hmm. So thinking about like, what is realistic for me, given my lifestyle, given my budget, just where I am, what can I do to be a more conscious consumer? And so what I recommend is people start by asking themselves, like, what is something that's really important to me? And what I mean by that is, you know, is environmental sustainability like the most important thing to me? Or is it more important that I see something that's made in America? Or is it more important than I'm buying from a women owned and operated or a minority owned and operated or veteran owned and operated business? Like, what is the value that I want to sort of put my weight behind? And then based on, you know, whatever that value is, let's say in my case, I really feel strongly about supporting women owned and operated businesses, then picking a category that you spend money on that you want to commit to aligning that value with that spending. So I'm a total coffee addict. I like am a robot of a human, a shell of a person without coffee. And so like the fact that I could find a women owned and operated women grown coffee Mm -hmm. for me to buy and have at my house that I roast is like a very, very easy step for me to take and being a more conscious consumer because I just aligned like money I spent anyways with the value that was important for me. And then it made it very easy for me. So let's move into Corona because we're in an emergency situation. And I think a lot of this stuff gets put on the back burner when people are in an emergency, which is very fair. You have been getting a lot of great press um, that I've been seeing for your work during COVID. Do you want to talk about what the market has been doing and sort of like what I know you said you've had a really uh, very, very busy quarantine time. So so what are you up to and what's sort of making this noise? So in early March, it became increasingly clear to my team that the U.S. looked like it was going to have a shortage of protective product, personal protective equipment, PPE. And so I thought, okay, you know, even though apparel, accessories, and home goods is to the market's core, we have a syndicated supply chain, meaning we have suppliers around the world, you know, multiple suppliers in each country that potentially could be added value in producing other cut and sew product like masks or gowns that would be needed in the United States. And because we have this expertise in having vetted these suppliers and having expertise in actually importing product into the United States, I felt like it was an opportunity for us to try to be helpful. So we sent out uh, a request for proposals and I guess early to mid-March, got feedback from our suppliers, like very eager feedback of suppliers that were really excited, not only to potentially make a difference, but also to try to save jobs because so much of the retail Mm -hmm. industry had shut down. And then uh, my amazing team started pitching this PPE product to initially hospital systems. So when you say this, let me back up for a second. So when you say this PPE product, what do you mean specifically? masks and gowns. Yeah. Okay. So really it's cut and sew. So we did cut and sew already, right? We did apparel mm-hmm. and accessories like bags, which is cut and sew. But mm-hmm. now it was a pivot towards masks and gowns, which were which are still in desperate need in the United States. And so um, we were able to source and manufacture 
to date, I think we've sourced and manufactured, gosh, I don't know, 2.5 million units or something of PPE. And so that has kept my team very busy. It certainly generated press that I didn't think we would uh, ever have. Mm-hmm. And that never thought that we would be in this space, but it still aligns with, you know, our sort of slogan is powering the ethical supply chain. And so we still feel like it's a great example of using our supply chain for good. I mean, we're going to be in this uh, fight or situation for a while in varying phases. So like, how do you think, do you think it'll change your company? I mean, what portion of your work now is going towards PVE compared to like the rest of your, I know current retail is not doing well. So like, what, what does that look like for the future of your business? You know, it's so interesting. So I would say, you know, April was very, very slow on retail buys. Um, Very, very slow. And we were almost exclusively doing PPE. Since early to mid-May, we've definitely seen an uptick in sourcing from us, particularly from e-commerce companies, Mm -hmm. because what they're finding is that if they were reliant on a certain country or even a specific factory for sourcing and manufacturing, that country or factory might not be self-functioning. And so they're finally realizing, wow, like there really is added value for me having a syndicated supply chain. And so they're turning to to the market because we have so many suppliers um, in so many different countries. And so interestingly enough, we've definitely seen a healthy uptick in our retail work That said, I think PPE will continue to be a part of to the market's value proposition as long as it's needed. It will be a product line, but it will not be the exclusive focus of the business. Okay. So one thing we were talking about before we started recording, which I want to talk about, is now we're entering a period where there is a lot of single-use PPE and a lot of PPE waste How are you handling that with the PPE you're making? And then what do we do about this new category of waste that we're creating during this crisis? Yeah. So one of the sort of realizations that I've had in the last week is just like the extent of the medical waste that this pandemic is generating. So in a hospital system, you know, you are maybe on, you know, an hourly basis putting on a new uh, three-ply mask, isolation gown, super thin gauzy material that you put on your body that like ties in the back like Mm -hmm. every person's nightmare. Most of that is a disposable product. And um, oftentimes it has, the fabric has been treated in such a way that it has performance that's required in a hospital hospital setting. Mm -hmm. And so um, one of the things that we're really trying to think about is how do we create reusable versions of these products? Meaning how do we take fabric, for example, in the United States and treat it in a way, meaning like treat it like from a chemical standpoint in a way that allows it to have the same performance as a disposable isolation gown. Um, Usually that relates to making it more uh, repellent of liquids so that we're at least able to begin reducing the number of waste that's being created by this pandemic. So that's something that we actually started doing about 30 days ago. We found Um, some U.S. fabric. We found a union factory that we could partner with in New Jersey. 
we had the fabric treated so that it's close to something called a level two isolation gown, which is sort of like right in the middle of the, the levels around how repellent, uh, liquid repellent an isolation gown is. And we started creating reusable gowns in this u- union factory. I feel like a lot of people are trying to scramble to get this PPE, to get masks, to get gowns. I feel like we are all struggling to get masks um, and other, you know, things that we need and gloves and protective equipment, but also, you know, what if we get sick? So how do you balance being in an emergency? Like, I feel like, and I will admit the bottom of my list right now is sustainability. So how do you stay mindful. I wouldn't say it's the bottom of my list, but, you know, I care about, you know, first and foremost being safe and, you know, my family and friends being safe. So like, how do we make those ideas not mutually exclusive? Well, I think it's just sort of doing like a risk equation around like, what can I afford to do that is more sustainable. So if I'm a healthcare worker, like my risk is very high. So my willingness to make concessions for sustainability is probably going to be very low. If I am a regular citizen who is just facing, you know, the trip to the grocery store or, you know, the, in my case, three, four or five times a day power walk (laughs) to get outside. Yeah. How, like, can I make the choice to use a two-ply woven mask that is reusable, that can be washed rather than me buying like a packet of three-ply masks myself and constantly throwing them away? So mm-hmm. I think you have to sort of ask, okay, like, what is what is my exposure? And then what are the choices that I can make that are realistic for me? I think for most of us consumers, we can make the choice to buy Um, washable masks. I recommend Mm -hmm. woven versus knit. um, That tends to have better performance in sort of blocking, I guess, particulates. And so that to me feels like a step that we could all take rather than doing disposable masks as consumers. So what other steps are you taking right now or tips that you might have? Um, I mean, a lot of this is already ingrained in sort of who you are and what you do, but I guess like, what are some easy tweaks that you're doing right now that you think could lead to more sustainable outcomes? They don't just have to be in PPE. I just mean in general, like being in this situation is very extreme. Like, are there small things you're able to keep to for yourself that you feel like maybe other people could learn from? I think there's, there are definitely a lot of little things that we can do that I think can reduce our our footprint. So one is um, a lot of us are ordering food a lot more than we normally would and being really vigilant about leaving notes in, you know, sort of the order form that like, let's say you're ordering pizza or you're ordering, I don't know, Chinese food, like being clear that you don't need like a thousand and one ketchup packets. Mm-hmm. Um, you in fact have ketchup at home. Like, so that you're not even on those little things like cutlery, like all the plastic napkins and condiments. And like, there's so much waste that often gets just shoved in the delivery bag. Like just making an update on your notes, like, okay, I don't need any of that product because I'm in fact at home eating. That to me feels like a real, uh, a real easy one for all of us to make. And then a second would be like, again, related to ordering, because it feels like all I do now is, is wait for my next meal yeah is um is to also just think about spreading out your ordering from chains to independent businesses 
So um, I think part of being a conscious consumer is supporting, you know, independent businesses. That to me is important. And so like, again, if I'm thinking about ordering pizza, saying, okay, Domino's, Papa John's, I love you guys. Um, but what about like the local pizzeria? How do I think mm-hmm. about like the extent to which I can order locally? Because they likely don't have the same balance sheet that these large chains have and are likely higher risk, let's say, for um, going out of business. So let's switch gears to your it never gets old fashion life. Do you buy secondhand? Love secondhand. Yeah, I am. I particularly like secondhand resort wear. Oh, really? We haven't. So like a good caftan, like what? I love a good cat. Like I have like the most amazing pink green, like it's pink and then it has green embroidery and then it has sequins on it. Caftan that I bought in Portugal. That Mm. was vintage. That is literally like the most glorious thing I've ever seen. And then I love Cabana Vintage. That's like a, if y'all are on Instagram, just Cabana Vintage. They have these like old school dresses from like the 50s, 60s, 70s that are so fun. And I love buying them because nobody else has them. So when did you start? Let's, I want to get deeper into that in a second. But uh, when did you start like vintage shopping or secondhand shopping? I started in high school because I went to a school in a town that had like literally no stores that had product that you would actually want to purchase. Like Mm -hmm. that was new. And, but it had these like extraordinary vintage stores because it had really great stuff that for whatever reason, nobody wanted. And so I would like absolutely love going to these little secondhand stores because nobody in the town wanted the product and you could get these like incredible old like vintage leather bags or mm. um, really amazing costume jewelry that just like were not relevant in this tiny town but were like so perfect for me where did you grow up so i grew up in houston but i went to high school in connecticut so this was like a tiny little town in connecticut mm. so what got you into resort wear Well, I'm like a total like endless summer seeker. Like I just like Mm. love the sun. I think growing up in Houston, at least through eighth grade, made me like really, really like warmth. And Mm -hmm. I just feel drawn to the ocean. Um, I just love water. Like I'm Mm -hmm. just at peace when I'm by the water. And so I'm happiest when I am wearing resort wear and, you know, a beach is within a five minute drive. So how do you define resort wear? There's like, so there's a lot of different ways to, you know, do you mean like resort season of designers? Do you mean like just straight up like cover ups? I know you said something about dresses, like explain a little bit about your resort wear obsession. So I'm, I would say like mostly falling in like the like dress and caftan space like mm-hmm. that. I tend to be very inclined towards like shapeless product. Mm, um, mm-hmm. maybe there's like some sort of belt that you add to the shape if you so choose, but oftentimes, mm-hmm. you know, it's like just this straight up caftan. I'm um, just, cause it's so stinking comfortable. I mean, you can throw it over your bathing suit and throw it over like normal underwear. Like it's just, yeah. And I okay, feel so- like if you get like really cool ones and it's like your outfit is done. Like there, nothing else has to happen. <laughs> no jewelry, no like accessories. It's just this like amazing caftan. And there you go. Do you have a favorite one? 
Well, I actually, that pink one that I got in Portugal, that like vintage one is so mm-hmm. good looking. Like it is, it is like a dream. I, I remember seeing it in the window. This is in Lisbon. I lived there last year. I remember seeing it in the window and it was almost like seeing like a little, like, like, you know, like a sign from heaven. It was like, oh, like I, I just, <laughs> I knew it was going to, I didn't even try it on. I was like, please let me have it. Um, and I just, I love it. What are your recommendations for buying secondhand or vintage resort wear? Like what are, what's the 101 on like half tans well, and, and that sort of stuff? First of all, I'm, I'm big on having things tailored. So like I'm less focused on, oh, is this like a size? Is this my size? As long as it's like my size or bigger, I'm like, all right, bring it on. Like we can take this like amazing material and um take it in a little bit or whatever needs to happen shorten it i mean whatever you know whatever changes need to to take place i'm usually looking for really great material because i feel like with the great material like almost any seamstress can like make the caftan work like take it in Mm. and create the caftan because it's just such simple lines Mm -hmm. to create the caftan so i i really focus on like what material looks great and what's going to breathe like what's a breathable material. And then obviously mm-hmm. like you don't want being in resort wear. you don't want something that's like, you know, been overly sweat in. Yeah. So, get it out. <laughs> but so where do you buy them now? Like where do you secondhand shop and where do you have, do you have store recommendations or online recommendations? Cabana vintage is great. That's online. Yeah, I'm looking them up um, right now. Yeah, she sort of slowed down like in the last couple of months, I think just with everything going on. But normally it's like very vibrant. She's constantly adding new finds, et cetera. Um, I've gotten some great pieces from her. In Atlanta, where I'm quarantining, there is the store, of course, I haven't been able to go since the quarantine started, but there's a store called Labels, which is this like three house plus uh, mm. secondhand store that has like amazing finds from all around Atlanta. And that is a great place. And then I just follow, like I, I follow people online, like happy Isles, for example, like I just find these accounts and then follow mm-hmm. along. And usually they're just posting on Instagram finds that they find and, you know, you go in with the direct message. Do you sell any vintage? Like what's your secondhand selling life been like, if any? It has been like not. I have like a a, a non selling life. Well, it's hard to it's hard to sell this sister. stuff. It can be, uh, yeah. But I also have a younger sister, so it's like anything that like is no longer like of use in my life, like automatically goes to her. Mm. So I mean, we're in weird times for shopping and secondhand, but like, is there anything you're really looking for right now besides a good like caftan or dress? I always like to find like really great sort of vintage sunglasses too. Mm. Like I just don't think you can go wrong with like really amazing like 50s like cat eye for example sunglasses. Where are you finding them? Just so great Etsy. Etsy Mm. has some great vintage and actually speaking of like for this moment I predict a look that's going to be super hot and I don't even care if it's not hot except in my head is like the return of white gloves that women wear with like really pretty dresses like the 50s because we're going to be wearing gloves especially if we're like going back to work or like having to commute publicly or whatever that looks like and so not having to like like if I have to take the subway when I'm back in New York like and who knows when that will be but I mean 
why would I not wear like some amazing white vintage gloves with my like summer outfit rather than, you know, like garden gloves? Like, yeah, that's so that's so interesting. I hadn't even thought of that, guys. Secondhand gloves like those are going to be a certainly a thing. I have a hot pink pair that are firsthand. My mom gave me and I was just switching out my like since we got no transitional weather or our transitional weather was sitting inside in our house and still sitting inside in our house. Um, I was putting all my gloves and scarves in my closet, but now I might pull out those pink eyes. They're like hot. They're, they're like lined, like they're they're but they're no, but they're actually physically hot. They might be also hot, but they're also like physically hot. So we'll be have to, we'll have to navigate that, but that's interesting for like glove makers. Um, who are like very, very seasonal, great white gloves, like with like, bomb ruffles on them and like mm-hmm. just like cool stuff that you know will be like easy to slip on in the summer will look like feminine and just fun i am i'm like really pumped about that trend bring what's it your, back baby what's your number one vintage buying tip i think it's like find a material you love because i think mm. you can turn it into almost anything you want i mean i have this like amazing red dress that is this old like it must have been like an Indian like throw blanket or like duvet Mm -hmm. cover like it's like Mm -hmm. one of those like old um usually it's from Jaipur like it's red with all of this amazing like sequined embroidery on it and I had it made into this like shift dress Mm -hmm. and it's so cool looking and it's just because the material is so cool like it's just if you can find that right fabric like you can do almost anything with it well, if you're vintage, I mean, all of us, none of us can go like, oh, I can't wait to go to like a secondhand store. Oh, my God. But um, how do you make sure of that when you're finding these online? I think you just have to look at the photos. I mean, mm-hmm. read the descriptions, look at the photos, read the reviews to see like if people feel like the seller, you know, does a good job being honest about, you know, the quality, the condition, mm-hmm. et cetera. And then, you know, decide what what your risk appetite is and then go for it. <laughs> So where can everyone find you and follow you and what should, you know, what do you want us to do? Well, I would love for anyone who has not pre-ordered Brag Better to get oh, and thank buy you. <laughs> thank you. And then when you're on the Penguin Random House site, click over to my book, buy the change you want to see. Um, that would Amazing. be hugely yes. helpful. And then I am online on Instagram and on Twitter at Jane Mossbacker. Thank you for joining us. And it's been very informative uh, and it never gets old listeners. You can always find the podcast online and more information on me, your host, Meredith Feynman, producer, Sarah Lane, guests, what have you at ingopodcast.com. You can email us anytime at hello at ingopodcast.com and slide into the DMs at ingopodcast on Twitter and Instagram or my own and stay safe. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. 
Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started.